So we are in the, in the midst of 2 Samuel and really looking at the life of David as king. And one of the things that I have suggested or urged us really to understand is going on in this book is that David, uh, in many, if not all ways, is a forerunner of Jesus. Uh, now, he's a forerunner of Jesus in some of his actions. He's also a forerunner of Jesus in his disobedience, not because Jesus will repeat that, but because Jesus will be everything that David could not be. And so we're meant to read this book not with a, lack, not with a hope in a human David, and also not with a lack of hope where who can do this, but with an eye towards the real and rightful king that is Jesus that we celebrate on this triumphal entry Palm Sunday where the crowds laid down their robes and laid down palm leaves and sang out Hosanna, Hosanna, the King of glory enters into our midst. And the beauty of the church and the Christian life is that every day is Palm Sunday for us. And we don't have to wait once a year to welcome Jesus that we get to live the fullness of our existence with His presence. And it's what enables us to sing songs like we sang earlier, and even at times to go through some of the deepest lows imaginable because of the presence of King Jesus with us. We are in 2 Samuel chapter 16 today, so feel free to turn there. Um, And in this chapter, we'll continue to see uh, David's journey into exile. You remember, if you've been with us, that Absalom has led a coup, as it were, has taken over the kingship, has gathered all the people uh, through deceit on his side. David has fled Jerusalem in part for his own protection, but also in part to preserve the city and the people from a battle that would... envelop the city and the capital of the nation. And so he's moving into exile. And I think what we will see as we spend just a few minutes in this chapter this morning is an awful lot of similarities to the final week of the life of Jesus. Uh, I did not plan for this to line up, but as I was praying through it and reading it, I just thought, my goodness, this chapter lines up so closely especially with the plight of Jesus from the end of the Last Supper until His crucifixion. And so I hope as we read it and think through this morning that we will see that and that it will speak to us in profound ways about uh, what Christ endured on our behalf. 2 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1. What we will find out is that uh, David encounters uh, three different... Guys, And so we'll just spend some time talking about each of these three guys. The third guy, David doesn't necessarily encounter, but he knows about, uh, and it probably is the most significant impact on him. So here we go. Verse 1, when David had gone a short distance beyond the summit, there was Ziba, the steward of Mephibosheth, waiting to meet him. Now, if you remember anything about Ziba from the previous parts of this story, this guy is just not a good guy, right? There's a Seinfeld episode where Frank Costanza is telling about a, a difficult meeting between 
uh, him and the parents of his girlfriend when he was younger, uh, and he was translating what they said about him in Korean, because it was a Korean family, and his translation was, this guy, this guy's not our kind of guy, <laughs> right? Ziba, this guy, this guy's not our kind of guy. He's a bad dude. He's constantly using the less fortunate or the people in positions of difficulty for his own personal gain. So when we first meet him, he has taken a crippled and disabled Mephibosheth who rightfully has significant means and he has flipped the script, taken control of the means and by so doing made himself wealthy and rich and put Mephibosheth in a difficult spot. When David meets Mephibosheth and restores him, David flips that back around to how it's supposed to be. But now Ziba sees a new opportunity. David's on the run. Kings are changing. How can Ziba collect, right? And here's what we find out. He had a string of donkeys saddled and loaded with 200 loaves of bread and 100 cakes of raisin and 100 cakes of figs and a skin of wine. And the king, David, asked Ziba, why have you brought these? And Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on. The bread and the fruit are for the men to eat. And the wine is to refresh those who have become exhausted in the wilderness. And it seems like, wow, what a guy, right? Ziba's like changed, but David sees through it immediately. See his next question? Where's your master's grandson? He's like, where's Mephibosheth? And Ziba says, he's staying in Jerusalem because he thinks, today the Israelites will restore me to my grandfather's kingdom. And so seeing that David had seen through his ruse, He now turns and patently and boldly lies. And we find out later in the story that what he says here is just not true. He's suggesting to David that Mephibosheth has said, I'm not with David anymore. Yes, he restored me. Yes, he made me uh, a a royal heir. But I'm not with him anymore. Absalom's in charge now, so I'm going to go be with him because probably Absalom will make me king. Now, if we think that through at all, that makes no sense, right? Absalom didn't lead this whole coup in order to restore the line of Saul. He did it so that he would be king. But Ziba sees an opportunity. He says, well, Mephibosheth is staying in Jerusalem because he thinks he's going to become king again. He's basically saying, he doesn't care what you've done for him, David. He's in it for himself. And David, not having space or time to process it, he says quickly, he says, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. It seems to work. For Ziba, and Ziba humbly bows, may I find favor in your eyes, my Lord and my King. Ziba's like a predatory lender, right? You ever, you ever hear about those people, right? They, they call up the weakest and the most needy people, and they offer them what seems to be a good thing, but it's actually not for their sake at all, but, but for the lender's sake to, to get rich and wealthy and collect fees all over. Ziba is a slimy, slimy oil snake kind of salesman, snake oil kind of salesman. He's a guy who, if we were into moralistic preaching, point one, two, and three of the sermon would be, please don't be like Ziba. This is not a guy who you should be like ever. And yet I was thinking about it. Isn't it sometimes true that our posture towards God is more a ruse than a true posture, right? It's more a posture that we assume in order that we might extract from God something that we feel like we need and or deserve rather than an honest posture of worship. 
Here Ziba is bowing before David as if he really uh, honors him as king, and yet it's all a ruse. And I wonder sometimes if we translate David to Jesus, if we are guilty of that too. And I think the honest answer for some of us, uh, pause, rewind, the honest answer for all of us is we are at times guilty of this, isn't it? So we move on to the second person, this guy named Shimei. Verse 5, King David approached Baharim, a man from the same clan as Saul's family came out from there. So now this Shimei is going to be a, a relative or a member of the, of the Benjamite clan uh, from which Saul comes. His name is Shimei, son of Gera. He came out and he cursed as he was coming out. Now this does not mean he was shouting four-letter words. This means he was cursing David to hell, right? He was casting and or figuratively cursing the presence and existence of David. He pelted David and all the king's officials with stones. Through all the, though all the troops and the special guard were on David's right and left, he cursed. And Shimei said, get out, get out, you murderer, you scoundrel. The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has given the kingdom into the hands of your son Absalom. You have come to ruin because you are a murderer. Now, what's funny about the story of Shimei here is that in one part, he's absolutely right, right? The Lord has brought, in some sense, consequential destruction on David because of his sin, which included murder. But Shimei is actually completely untrue and has no basis for what he's doing because he's not talking about the plot to murder and have Uriah killed, nor is he talking about David's heinous and uh, heinous sinful act with Bathsheba. What he's suggesting is that David was involved in a plot to kill Saul and to kill Jonathan and then later to kill Ishbosheth in the beginning of 2 Samuel. And of course, we know from the story that it's just not true, that David was not involved in these things, that David mourned their death, and that David did not seize power. But from the outside looking in, Shimei says, you, look what you have done to me and to my people. He really doesn't like David. Right? So when I was thinking about this, like cursing and pelting with stones, the first thing that came to my mind, and if you're not a sports fan, I apologize, is Philadelphia sports fans, right? Because this sounds like something they would do, right? You've heard stories about these people, and I confess I'm one of them. I've never pelted anyone with stones. I've never even pelted Santa Claus with a snowball, though we've all been accused of that. But there's this, the Philadelphia sports fans are famous for booing and for kind of that animosity and that anger that comes up for it. If you watched the 76ers' first playoff game yesterday, you heard lots of booing for a team that we love, and you even heard players afterwards saying, how could you boo us? You know? But there was this one guy in Philadelphia sports lore. Some of you who know the Phillies, you are, you've honed in on this guy already, right? His name was J.D. Drew. Do you guys remember this guy? You might not remember him well. He, he was drafted by the Phillies, and he basically said, I'll never play in Philadelphia. He wouldn't sign a contract. He went a whole year without playing. He went back into the draft, and then he, he got drafted by the Cardinals. And then he came to play. I don't know if it was at the vet or it was at the new field. And this, this happened, and this is not good. But not only did he get 
incredibly heinously booed, and not only were horrible things said about him, but the, the fans actually, you remember this? They took batteries, and they started pelting him in the outfield with batteries, so much so that the umpires called all the players in. So some of the stories about Philadelphia sports fans are unfortunately, they're quite true, right? So Shimai was in right field at Veterans Stadium when J.D., right? I don't know if we're supposed to laugh about it or not, but right? Shimai, like I can't even picture this. One dude against a whole marching army, he's out there cursing them, cursing them to hell, pelting them with stones. Like, this, there's a deep-seated anger and hatred in him because he feels like he's been wronged and things haven't gone his way. And then, look, look what happens. There's this guy named Abishai, who's one of the lead guys in, in David's mighty men, his son of Zeruiah. This is verse 9. He said to the king, why should this dead dog, right? Why should this dead dog curse the Lord my king? Let me go over and cut his head off, right? This is good Old Testament language. And we're all thinking, yeah, go cut his head off, right? What is this guy doing? Like slice him up, chop him up, be done with him. And David David says, what does this have to do with you, Abishai? If he's cursing because the Lord said to him, curse David, who can ask why does he do this? Now, does David really think that God told Shimei to do this? Maybe, we don't know. And David then said to Abishai and all of his officials, verse 11, my son, my own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. How much more then would a Benjamite? Leave him alone. Let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore to me his covenant blessing instead of his curse today. Can I read that again? Because this is countercultural. It may be that the Lord will look upon my misery. And restore to me his covenant blessing instead of his curse today. We've got three subsections of this story with Shimei, right? You've got Shimei who is deeply hurt and angered by what he perceives as injustice or God not coming through on his side. What he perceives as David being not who he wanted him to be. That's one side of it. Then you've got Abishai who's saying, let's just take care of this mess and be done with it right now. And then you have David saying, actually, what I'm going to do, if I'm going to be active in anything, it's going to be active in faith that God would look upon me in this mess. And that he would restore to me covenant blessing. We alluded to it earlier in the service, and maybe in some other ways, you have or currently find yourself in a really difficult part of life's journey. And I think this little story gives us three options with how to respond to that kind of part of our narrative, right? The first is, we're ticked, (laughs) or we're hurt. And we're cursing God and saying, how could this happen? Why would this happen this way? I don't understand. This, the, the, why is it not working out the way that I had hoped it would? It's one option. 
And there's a second option, the option of Abishai, the cut its head off option is, how about we just be done with this and get on to better things, right? But there's something in David that realizes that sometimes, for whatever reason, God asks us to journey through the valley of the shadow of death. And that rather than place our hope in our entitled agenda and what we think should happen, Shimei, or place our hope or ask in just getting this out of the way, removing this from my circumstance, perhaps the true way to real hope in life is to look to God himself. And say, maybe God will look on me in my misery and return to me covenant blessing. Now there's a couple of things implicit in the statement. The word maybe implies that David realizes he can't control the outcome, right? But he says maybe not whatever anything else because he also knows that while he can't determine the length of course that this difficulty will take, he can be certain that in the end God will be with him and God will restore to him this covenant blessing in this life or in the fully renewed one to come. And so he can say to Abishai, yeah, it would be really good to get this crap out of my life right now. But that's not the answer to life. The answer to life is to look up rather than down and to honestly take hope in a God who is intimately acquainted with our struggle. Well, you might say, well, David got himself into this mess, so how's God going to look? How's he going to look graciously at this circumstance? Well, you'd be interested to know that perhaps an even better translation of verse 12 is instead of the word misery, is probably actually the Hebrew word iniquity. That David is actually saying, maybe God will look on my sin and yet return to me covenant blessing. How on earth could he say something like that? Because he actually knows God. That this is the God in whom he places his hope. Not some religious version of God that says, we've got to really do great things for God so he can return blessing to us but a God that actually can look on us in our worst, not just the worst that others have done to us, but our worst, and say, maybe God will return to me. Covenant blessing. And in the maybe, we are not saying he might not. We're saying he might not this minute. But he will. And so David continues... On the journey. I'm not going to pause to read because we're running out of time. But the next guy is a guy named Ahithophel. And if you continue to read through the end of chapter 16, what you find out is Ahithophel is actually, he was actually one of David's closest colleagues. He, he was David's most trusted advisor. There's a, there's a verse at the end of chapter 16 that basically said, David treated Ahithophel's advice as if it came from the mouth of God himself. 
You sense the closeness and the trust in this relationship. And Ahithophel has deserted David, and he has joined team Absalom. And while we can't fully understand why he would make a choice like this, we have to, in our core, believe that Ahithophel has determined in his own judgment that David is either not worthy to be the king or isn't the rightful king, and that maybe Absalom or someone else is. We know the seriousness of Ahithophel's betrayal to to David because the first piece of advice that Ahithophel gives to Absalom is you should go into the house of your father, gather up his concubines, and have relations with them. In other words, seize control of your dad's house. And he says, don't just do it in private. We'll build a tent on the roof so that all Israel will know exactly what's going on. This is serious betrayal. A serious switch in believing that David is the rightful king into believing that David is not the rightful king. And Absalom does this, and and Ahithophel says, when you do this, it will make you, I think the word in the NIV is, it will make you seem obnoxious to your father. And and the the better translation is, it'll make you smell really bad. Like, really, really bad. We had, uh, I hope I'm okay to say this. We had community group on Friday night, and we had Korean food, and it was wonderful and delicious, but there was this one Korean food that Roy and Kate were saying to us that, like, if you let it sit in kimchi, right? If you let it sit and ferment for years, for weeks, I don't know how long it's years, decades, I don't know how long it's sit. But the longer you let it sit, the worse it smells, right? And so, like, if you let it sit forever and ever, it smells bad. So, like, this would be, like, what he's saying here in Hebrew would be, like, kimchi that has been fermenting for, like, two millennium, right? So it's just the worst smelling possible thing in the whole wide world, you know? Or whatever you can... You know, remember what is he's like, and and this is what he's telling him to do because he has clearly changed sides, you know. And then into into chapter seventeen, Ahithophel then gives Absalom the advice: We should go after David now while he's weak. I can tell you exactly where to find him and how to capture him. Listen to these words. So that when you capture him, you will kill him alone and all of his followers will flee from him. Right? But David has left behind someone else named Hushai. We'll probably talk about him in two weeks. And Hushai gives advice to Absalom. And Absalom, for whatever reason, we know the reason, because of God's providential and intentional thrust and defense of David, chooses Hushai's advice, and Ahithophel says he goes back to his town, he gets his stuff in order, and he takes his own life. He hangs himself, it says. And why he would do this is probably a whole summation of reasons. One, he probably now, because Absalom doesn't take his advice, believes that he probably chose wrongly in the choice between David and Absalom. He probably also has a serious hit to his pride. Who am I if I'm not the one who the king trusts? There's probably all kinds of things 
going on in this. But friends, all of this chapter, I hope that you've heard it, points us right to Jesus, doesn't it? I mean, sure, we need to ask ourselves, do we posture ourselves wrongly towards God sometimes? And the answer is yes. And, and do we find ourselves, you know, maybe not out loud, but sometimes cursing or questioning or throwing stones at God because things haven't happened as we wanted to? Yes! At least I do. Do we sometimes try to commission an Abiathar of some kind to just get this over with so I can move on to better things instead of trusting that God is with us through the difficult journey? Those are all important things to ask, but if we believe that David is a forerunner of Jesus, let me tell the story again, but through the lens of King Jesus. Jesus shared the Passover meal with his closest friends. You remember this? On the Thursday, the night before his crucifixion. And that night at that table, in that setting, he announced that one of his closest friends would betray him. Remember this? It says that Judas was entered by Satan and he went out and he negotiated with the leaders and told them exactly where to find him. And Judas brought the leaders to him. And when they arrested him, the gospel writers tell us, all of those who followed Jesus fled. But in the midst of the arrest, there was a guy named Abiathar, who we know as Peter. Remember Peter in the midst of the arrest? Remember what he does? He takes out his sword. Do you remember? I think he was trying to cut off Malchus's head. He just got his ear. Not great marksmanship. Or perhaps he was still tired from sleeping while Jesus asked him to keep guard and pray. And what does Jesus say? No! This is not how the kingdom comes. The kingdom doesn't come by just getting rid of these things. The kingdom comes by walking through the darkness to victory on the other side. And Jesus, in some crazy divine way, restores and heals the very man who has come to arrest him. And he endures all kinds of mocking. Though there may not have been stones thrown at him, there was a crown of thorns embedded on his head. He was beaten The gospel writers tell us he was spit on, he was punched in the face countless times. He was whipped numerous times on his back, not with just a leather whip, but what the British would later call a cat of nine tails. Many strands off a whip, and on each strand a sharpened piece of bone or glass, so that when the whip would strike his back, these pieces would lodge into his flesh, and as the whip was pulled back, it would tear off portions of of his flesh, and all along he is being mocked, even on the cross. Hey, if you're God, why don't you just get rid of this stuff? And yet the path that Jesus chose was a path of self-imposed exile. He was not journeying because he needed to face the consequence of his own sin. He was journeying because he chose to face the consequence of our sin. 
And rather, though he wrestled with it, right? He had an Abiathar moment in the garden. Lord, if you would be okay with it, take this cup away from me. Because he loved you more than you will ever comprehend on this earth, he chose to walk in the valley of the shadow of death. With every punch, with every puncture, with every lash, with every nail, with every mock and taunt, you were on his mind. And you were on his heart. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 16, we see a king who has placed his hope in God and has acted in faithfulness. And that much more in our King Jesus, we see a king who has placed his hope in the Father. Wouldn't it have seemed better to just be king on Palm Sunday? Who has placed his hope in the Father and who has willingly chose to enter into the fullness of the valley of the shadow of death. Because as we sang before, He did not want heaven without us. Because He loves you. Because He knows you. He knows you in your misery, and He knows you in your iniquity. And He says, you can have hope. I am restoring to you covenant blessing. This is our hope. This is our king. Can I pray with you?